Well, the Bible assures that nothing can separate us from God's love. That means no person, no past, no sin, no struggle, nothing. Still, is that hard for you to fathom? Even the Apostle Paul admitted that the love of God is too great to understand. So while we may never grasp a love that knows no boundaries, at least on this side of eternity, we can meet it and we can be changed by it. And that's where we're headed. Get ready for a meeting with God's love. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of the book Shut Up Devil, creator of the app Shut Up Devil. I'm all about shutting down the lies and the struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life, and I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join me and our loving community here on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. By the way, just shouting out again to our donors and partners, you know who you are. Thank you for keeping us going and growing. This ministry is entirely donor-supported. We cannot do this. We cannot be here without you. So thank you. And if you're someone who would like to partner with us in reaching people and keeping us here, you may do so at any time at kylewinkler.org donate. Okay, in my time in ministry so far, I found that many Christians believe they're saved, but they don't believe they're loved. I'd say that was me for almost the first decade of my faith. The reality of some past regrets and present struggles in my life made me believe that God simply couldn't completely love me, at least not all the time. So I lived in this constant cycle of, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. It was exhausting. I suspect some of you are there right now. Most are. A recent study revealed that three out of four Americans believe that God is either furious, critical, or distant. All of them, the opposite of loving. And why? Why do we believe that? Mostly because our concept of love has been skewed by our observations, how we've seen it expressed, maybe from others to us, or just around in the world. Or maybe even some unfortunate religious demonstration of what somebody illustrated love as or described love as. We often think love is based on something. You do good, you'll be loved. You misbehave, you let someone down, and you won't be loved. So many of us think we have to earn God's love through some effort. We think, God can't love me after I fall into this or that. Who could love a person like me? How long before God stops loving me as if his love is a resource that could be depleted? In the religious system I was brought up in, there was so much pressure to do everything perfectly. Sit and stand and kneel. All at the right times and the right ways. And then I used to hear people warn, don't do this or that, or God will get you back. So I was scared of God. I thought he was up in heaven, criticizing my every action, ready to zap me for my every mistake. I thought of him as nothing more than a taskmaster, that he was mad most of the time. Definitely not loving. Not unconditionally loving, especially. 
So my point is not to put the blame on any institution or any person because ultimately it's the devil's doing. He knows that the number one key to a close, intimate relationship with God is knowing that God loves you. You will not hear God. You will not sense God. You will not really see Him. You will not know His goodness if you don't know that He loves you. So the enemy works in all kinds of ways, even through well-meaning church people at times, to convince you that God doesn't love you. God can't love someone like you. But every argument that the enemy makes to that end is a lie. The truth is, is that it is impossible for God not to love you. You see, God does not choose whether or not he will apply his love. Love is not something that God does, because love is who he is. 1 John 4.16, it puts it in no uncertain terms. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. If you wonder, how is it possible for God to love without conditions? Or even how can he love people who don't love him back? Well, this is it. God is love. May you have the grace to grasp even a bit of the magnitude of what this means. Because God is love. He's not weighing your good works against your mess-ups to see if the scale tips in favor of you being worthy of love today. The truth that we can only teeter along the edges of understanding is that God cannot help but love because He is love. Now, I suspect God knew that our finite minds couldn't comprehend a limitless love as this. That's why He embodied the mystery of it in flesh. From His birth to His resurrection, everything that Jesus did modeled what love really is. When He spoke to the unspeakables, touched the untouchables, forgave the unforgivables, used the unusables, He revealed so a love so radical that it killed Him. Literally. Jesus' love was so countercultural and otherworldly that the world could not put up with it. We could spend the next year going through all the stories in which Jesus' demonstrations of love were just as I said. But there's one particular meeting with Jesus that I want to take you to. A story where I believe you'll meet and be changed by his love too. Let's start in John 4.4. Jesus had just wrapped up baptizing people with John the Baptist in the countryside of Judea. And he was set to go to Galilee. But John 4.4 says he had to go through Samaria on the way. If you were to look at a Bible map, you'd see why. The region known as Samaria stands between Judea and Galilee. Now, it's important to the story to understand that the Jewish people, which Jesus was a part of, did not, they did not get along with the Samaritans. I'm not going to get into all the details as to why, for the sake of time, but suffice to say, 
the Jewish people thought that the Samaritans had basically compromised with the world and compromised in their doctrines. And so they were dirty, half-breeds, hardly worthy of even being considered God's people. So Jewish people in that day would try to go around Samaria. They didn't even want to look or touch or talk to a Samaritan. They'd go around. They definitely wouldn't go in. But not Jesus. Now here's where the meeting begins. John 4, 5 through 7. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well at noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. Pause right there. Do you see this? As I said, Jesus didn't avoid Samaria like the rest of the Jewish people would have. He doesn't even walk like, I got to get through this. Don't let their immorality touch me. Don't let me even be seen by any of these heathens. You know, like some of us extra holy people would do. But Jesus goes into the city and he waits. And he waits for a woman. And when she gets there, he asks something of her. Please give me a drink. He shows her dignity. That she, a Samaritan woman, was worth getting something from. Now this surprises the woman because not only is he Jewish, not supposed to be talking to her, not supposed to be asking anything from her, but she's also a woman. And Jewish men were forbidden to speak to women in public. So what Jesus was doing was a big, big no-no to the religious system of that day. This is why she says to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you. Right here, this is love. Jesus' love knows no bigotry. It knows no boundaries. He loves the outcast. He loves those of the world and even the church world deemed too dirty or too different. In fact, compelled by love, Jesus comes and he sits and he waits to offer her something of value, to offer her the greatest gift, to show her his love. Now, I know some of you listening right now can deeply relate to the Samaritan woman. For some, things from your past, struggles from your present, your family history, have all been used by people in and outside of the religious systems to define you as a certain kind of person that God can't love. If you've been told that you're not welcome in the body of Christ, that you're too dirty or too different to be of any value, I want you to hear this right now. Jesus doesn't see you and where you came from or even where you are. He sees someone who is made in the image of God. And on that alone, you are valuable and deeply worthy of the gift of his love. Another important feature of the story is the time of day. In Bible times, drawing water and chatting at a community well was 
the high point of their social lives. Today's equivalent might be meeting someone in the morning for coffee, but it wasn't as easy as hopping on your donkey and going to Starbucks. Now, it was a journey that was pretty burdensome because they had to carry buckets for sometimes miles, barefoot or in uncomfortable sandals. So they did it in the morning before it was hot. But the woman came at noontime in the heat of the day. Why would she come at the hottest point of the day? Because she was ashamed of herself. She felt like she was an immoral, unmarried woman living openly with the sixth man in a string of men. So she goes to the well at a time of day when she believed there would be few people. Few people that she would have to endure their judgmental glances or their whispers about her. Shame caused her to hide. That's what shame does. It's what it's always done. When Adam and Eve fell to their first sin, the Bible says they experienced shame, which caused them to hide from God. And it causes us to hide too. When you believe that what you've done or who you are makes you someone who is wrong, that's the definition of shame, that who you are is wrong, then it causes you to avoid people out of the fear that they'll reject you. And even worse, to avoid God out of the fear that He rejects you too. If you've been with me for a while or you've read my book, Shut Up Devil, you know that when I first started the ministry that I'm in today, barely a month into stepping out, I was bombarded with reminders of my every sin since potty training. But the most shaming reminders to me were those of mistakes that I made after a Christian, because, you know, even though we're saved, we're not perfect in the flesh. So I've got to gloss over this story for the sake of time, but it was an intense battle that made me isolate myself from friends for a little while and believe that God couldn't love me and definitely that God couldn't use me in ministry. But you know what? At the height of my shame, of feeling I was too messed up to be used by God, God came doing what He always does. He came pursuing me, and He pursued me to show me the gift of His love, to show me what He did to prove His love in a fresh and profound way that I had never seen before. He showed me the finished work of Jesus. And this is what Jesus ultimately did for the woman at the well. The story says that He sat by the well at about noontime, and then the woman came. And friends, he's God. He didn't just happen upon the woman. He knew she'd be there. And he waited for her. He came to pursue her. Right smack dab in the midst, at the height of her shame, in her hiding place. To give her value. To give her a glimpse of her destiny. To demonstrate real love. That's what God does. And some of you, I know, are listening with things that are shaming you too. Perhaps right now, behind a screen or a speaker, you are in your well at noontime. But you know what? Jesus isn't surprised. 
He's not surprised you're here. He's been waiting patiently for this moment that you'd tune in. Maybe at the height of your shame, in your hiding place. He's been waiting for you to hear of your value to Him. For you to fully receive the gift of His love. God has met you here to start or deepen a relationship with you because He loves you. Jesus enters into conversation with the woman, and at first it kind of seems surface conversation to me. It's about water. And as Jesus typically does, he speaks to her in ways that she didn't initially understand. But then Jesus gets personal, which is always fun. In verse 16, he says, go and get your husband. To which she says, I don't have a husband. Again, Jesus is God. He knew this. But I think he needed her to get it out, to acknowledge it to him. You know, there's a healing power in finally acknowledging things to God. Whatever the case, Jesus replies, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, when I read that years ago, with my shallow understanding of God's love, Jesus' words almost seemed condemning. It almost felt as if he sneered, Aha, I caught you in a lie. But I no longer think that was his tone. I imagine that as she kind of flinched from the truth and looked down in shame, that he lifted her head and looked her in the eye with an expression that just said, I know all about you, and it's okay. Whatever really happened, the woman did not retreat like an abused animal. She drew near in amazement. She said, you must be a prophet. So she started to ask him questions. And Jesus continued the conversation with her to get to the purpose of his meeting. He introduced himself to her as who he really is. In John 4.26, it says, Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Basically, what he said to her is, I know the worst about you, but that doesn't change my mind about you. I'm your Savior, and I want you in my family. I remember God dealing with me in a similar way. I had finally acknowledged some things to Him, as if He didn't already know things. <laughs> you know, isn't that kind of what we do? We think we break news to God. But when I did, I was kind of filled with fear for a moment. Like, oh no, now God knows the worst about me. And What's he going to think? Maybe he can't use me. God led me to a scripture. Favorite scripture of mine. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. It simply says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And God used that to say, Kyle, you are no surprise to me. I knew all of that when I called you, yet I still called you. And he says the same to you. Right now, I invite you to take in all that this verse means for you too. At least as much as it's humanly possible to comprehend. Receive the truth that God knew you long before he made you. Long before he made the world. Before you were ever news to your parents. God knew you. All about you. And yet, despite knowing all the ways you would fall short and all the messes you would make in this life, He still chose to bring you into existence so that one day He could introduce Himself as your Savior, your Messiah. As Jesus conveyed to the woman at the well and as He comforted me, He's whispering to you too, He says, Dinah, you are no surprise to me. He says, Ben, you are no surprise to me. Tracy, you are no surprise to me. Christy, you are no surprise to me. He says, I know all about you. I loved you before you were made. I loved you through the messes you made. I love you in this very moment. I am your God and I want you in my family. You know, if you've never said yes to Jesus' invitation to be a part of his family, now is a great time to do it. The Bible says that all you have to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's Son, who died to forgive you of your sins. Just say, yes, God. I believe that. I accept your forgiveness. I receive your love. I want to be part of your family. Romans 3.22 says, if you do that, you are made right with God. Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart, then you are saved. Getting back to the story, there's a lot more to it. You can read it on your own. But I want to get to the point of what God's love does. John 4.28 The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Do you see? The woman was so stunned by her interaction with Jesus that she completely abandoned the reason that she came to the well in the first place and ran back to the village. Get that. This woman who came to the well at the hottest time of the day so that she didn't have to face anyone from her village now suddenly went to face everyone from her village with boldness, unafraid of their judgments. A meeting with God's love changed her. She was loved out of shame, out of the belief that her past made her an outcast, and out of the fear that someone like her could not be in God's family. But friends, this was no random 
demonstration of love. No. The love that Jesus showed in this story of the Samaritan woman is representative of everything he did. Hear me, please. Lean in to listen here. When God took on human flesh and entered our world, he did not lecture people into submission with do's and don'ts. He never once belittled with condemnation or wrote any struggler out of the faith. Instead, in demonstrating the purest kind of love, he walked alongside broken, flawed people and entered their battles with them, offering them a hand up and a way out, with no guarantee they would ever love him back, nor with any effort or promise to change their ways. Jesus laid down his life so that broken, flawed people could be brought into their family of their perfect creator. If you need a vision of real love, this is it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8, by the way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a love. In the place of our brokenness and knowing the worst about us, before we ever had a chance to love Him back or prove anything to Him or do anything for Him, Jesus sacrificed Himself to prove His love for us. What could ever come between the kind of love that is unconditionally willing to die for someone? As I said at the very beginning of this message, in Romans 8.38, the Bible boasts that nothing has that kind of power. No person, no past, no battle, no sin, no struggle, no symptom, no nothing. Now, there's something that I want to leave you with. Something heartfelt and healing that God gave to me, really to give through me to you. And I'm going to get to this in just a moment. But before I do, let me just tell you how I can help you beyond this message. For many people, God's love seems like such a basic message that we need to get on from, but yet it's also a complicated one that we can't fully grasp. But I promise. If you can get it and cherish it, there's more healing in receiving God's love than all the spiritual disciplines you can do. You want to overcome your battles, your struggles. There's more deliverance in God's love than anything else. My book, Shut Up Devil, is really a book of God's love. In fact, Publishers Weekly reviewed it, they concluded the message of God's love is unmistakable. And they're a secular book reviewer. So I praise God that they got the message of God's love from reading the book. All the chapters are really designed at shutting down the 10 lies that stand in the way of you believing that God loves you. 
There is a chapter particularly on God's love that is an expounded version of the message that I just taught. But you may get your signed copy of Shut Up Devil, silencing the 10 lies behind every battle you face at kylewinkler.org slash shutupdevil or in paperback, ebook, or audiobook, wherever books are sold. Okay, now on to what God gave me for you. As I said, one day as I sensed that God wanted to speak, I sat on my couch and I opened my notes app to get down whatever he had to say. And what I received was a love letter from the Lord that was addressed to you. The love letter is in my book, Shut Up Devil, but I put it on an actual card. Says you are loved. I thought I'd read it to you from this. So take this in. God says to you, My child, before you took your first innocent breath in this temporary home, and before the news of your coming was ever known, before you were formed, I knew you. I knew all about you. And I loved you. You were always my idea. When I considered the uniqueness you would bring and what it would offer my world, I made a choice to orchestrate your existence, so I spoke, let there be you. And I'm happy that I did. Every feature and shape, the precise way your face creases when you smile, oh, how I love that smile. The sound of your laugh and the passions you pursue, those aren't quirks, they're qualities. Qualities I crafted to make you, you. But what I love the most, why I made that consequential choice to bring you to life, is far more than anything you can do. It's the sound of your voice. Every word you confide, every struggle you share, every mess you confess. I look forward to those precious, tender moments when our hearts connect. My child, I love you. And all the words in a million love letters cannot adequately express what that means. You will find out more in time. But for now, know there is nothing you can do to change my mind. I love you. And I'm so glad you're here with me. Love, your Father, God. May you receive that for yourself today. Okay. That does it for the Shut Up Devil Show. Remember, God is good and He is for you. And we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media. Don't forget, wherever you're watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.